People are very concerned that Jesus may in fact be weak on crime. When they were complaining that this supposedly religious guy, this Jesus, people are referring to him as a rabbi, welcomes sinners and, and, and breaks bread with them, whether I like it or not, the story ends with reconciliation, with forgiveness. There's a common phrase, a common saying that says you you can't go home again, right? Uh, it really, it derives from the title of a novel by the 20th century American author Thomas Wolfe. The novel tells the story of George Weber, uh, who himself is a fledgling author in this story. And Weber writes a book that makes frequent references uh, to his hometown of Libya Hill, and in the story, this book becomes a national success, but the residents of his little hometown are not happy with the depiction of uh, their place and people. Uh, they think Weber has provided a distorted depiction of them, and they start to send him menacing letters. He even receives death threats. As he often did, Thomas Wolfe explores the changing American society of the 1920s and and the 30s, including the stock market crash, the, the illusion of prosperity, and the unfair passing of time, which prevents the author, which prevents Weber, uh, depicted in this story, from ever being able to return home again. The title and general theme of the book then has woven itself into our culture as a, as a saying. You can't go home again. It, you know, it means, among other things, that what you remember about your home, your, your, your place, will be quite different when, as an adult, you, you try to return there. Uh, not only because the place and the people may have changed significantly, but maybe even more importantly, you have changed. I'm sure you have those places that have been a formative part of your own history, but have changed over time. Not only home places, hometowns, but schools you may have attended, or churches. You try to go back and things have changed. I've talked about spending a lot of time down on the farm uh, growing up uh, where my father was born and raised down in southeastern Minnesota outside of Lanesboro, uh, we would go down there on the weekends and we didn't realize how good we had it. We, we loved to go down there, but, you know, we had ponies and mini bikes and snowmobiles in the winter and the run of this acreage. And we just thought everybody must have this when they're growing up. What a blessing it was. I can remember in the winter sometimes going down there, the whole family packed into our big old rear-wheel drive Ford station wagon, my dad driving through a snowstorm. I can remember coming down the hill before you cross the old iron bridge across the Root River. Uh, I wouldn't even try it myself now, but dad did it all the time. And I, I can remember waking up in the old farmhouse to smell uh, bacon and pancakes. My mom and aunts always made a great big breakfast there. And all we had to look forward to was a day of uh, exploring and riding and swinging on the old rope swing in the barn and shooting our BB guns and fishing in the river in the, in the summer. But today, if you go down there, 
The old farmhouse where we love to wake up in the mornings is kind of sinking into the ground. And the pastures, the upper pastures that surround the house where my uncle always had at least about 50 head of cattle grazing. There have been no cattle there for years. So they're all grown up with wild trees and thick underbrush. It all looks so different than it did when we rode around like kings on our Honda 50s shooting our BB guns. I wonder which places come to mind for you when you think about home places. I wonder if you feel like you can go back. It's been super fun throughout the morning hearing from people telling me how in the little town they grew up, every time they get near it, they drive around the block and around the block looking at the old house. A while back, we looked at the first time that Jesus returned home after he had begun his public ministry in there. Things didn't end so great that hometown folks decided that they should throw Jesus from a cliff and be done with him. And Jesus kind of gives his own version of you can't go home again. You know, prophet can't do any miracles in his own hometown. He said, you can't go home again. Our lives are full of stories. Our lives are stories in a very real way. Uh, I'm so often struck as I sit down front during a funeral service when someone from the family gets up to share about the deceased uh, uh, and tells stories and thinking, boy, you know, I thought you knew this person, but there's so much we don't know about one another, about our stories. If you get really famous or important or feel like you have a very unique sort of experience, maybe you even write your own autobiography so people can read your story. Well, today we have one of the most famous homecoming stories, not only in all of the Bible, but in all of human history, really. Nearly everybody has heard at least some version of the story we most often refer to as the prodigal son. But most people, even some of us here this morning, never knew or have forgotten why Jesus tells this Beloved, famous story. The Pharisees, these are very serious religious leaders. They are the keepers of the law. We sometimes give them a a, a bad time and they probably deserve a lot of it, but they were very serious religious folks who wanted the faithful people of Israel to live lives that are set apart so that the people would know they are not the same as everybody else. They are People of the covenant. They are the chosen. So the Pharisees, the keepers of the religious laws, were grumbling. This is a great word in the Bible. <laughs> they were grumbling uh, that Jesus had a tendency to welcome sinners and eat with them, which sounds like no big deal to us, but we should know that table fellowship, breaking bread with people, was a religiously loaded event. And there are all kinds of religious rules and regulations and rubrics that define how this is supposed to go. Uh, the way you wash your hands, where you sit at the table, how the food is prepared, what order it is served in, and so forth and so on. But Jesus appears not to be interested in really remembering any of these rules around table fellowship, nor who sits at the table with him. So the Pharisees are grumbling. And because of this grumbling, Jesus tells this story about a broken 
home, about a family where the youngest son decides to give his own father up for dead and ask for his inheritance early. Dad, I know I'll be in the will when the day comes, but I'd rather not wait. I would like my inheritance now. Thank you. And for some reason, the father obliges until the young son wastes everything in some distant land and finally prepares this well-rehearsed and scripted apology. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am not worthy to be called your son. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am not worthy to be called your son. He rehearses it. We've seen some very high-profile apologies of late. Several of them have taken place at the sentencing hearings for individuals who have been convicted of crimes related to political campaigns or conspiring with foreign adversaries or financial crimes. And more than one judge has made the point that apologizing to the court after you have been caught red-handed is really less than inspiring. So if we're going to rate this apology of the younger son of the prodigal, The first thing we notice is that he utters it only after it's quite clear how things are going to go in this story that Jesus tells. Before he ever speaks, the father runs out and wraps him up in a big bear hug, welcoming him and embracing him and putting a robe and a ring on him. So it might be pointed out that it's only then, when it's quite clear and perfectly safe how things are going, that the kid spits out his scripted and rehearsed apology. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to call your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am not worthy to call your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I'm not sure, given all these factors, that this apology rings sincere in my ears. He hatches his go-home-and-say-sorry plan only after he's hit rock bottom. He's run through the inheritance money. He's blown it on dissolute living, whatever that might be. Let your imagination run wild. His, his big brother certainly does. He's had to take a really lousy job. There's no worse job for a good Jewish boy than feeding pigs, right? And he wishes he could eat what he's feeding them. So here he is, broke, hungry, surrounded by pigs, and then he says to himself, even my father's hired hands have enough bread to eat and then some, and here I am dying of hunger. The whole motivation for going home and apologizing looks a bit self-serving to me. He never reflects on the pain he's caused his father. It's all about him, not about what anguish I've caused my family. There's no moral reckoning about his choices. The kid's just in a bind and he's dreamed up a way out. Even so, whether I like it or not, this story that Jesus told to some important religious officials who were in the religious rule-keeping business, this is why Jesus tells this story, People are very concerned that Jesus may in fact be weak on crime. 
when they were complaining that this supposedly religious guy, this Jesus, people are referring to him as a rabbi, welcomes sinners and, and, and breaks bread with them, whether I like it or not, the story ends with reconciliation, with forgiveness. The son is welcomed home. He's put back in the family. Here we are, stuck right in the middle of Lent. We, we know on some level it's a season of repenting. We know we're supposed to be sorry for our sins, but is that what the season is all about, about apologizing to God? I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, apologizing to God sounds like something I should certainly be doing. But then we get this story, a story about a broken family about a home place, and about how things change, how we change. You can't go home again, they say. Places change too much over time. You wouldn't even recognize the place. It's smaller than you remember it, or it's fallen apart, or it's sinking into the ground, or it's not even there anymore, and, and even if the place hasn't changed, you surely have. Or, 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 or not as many people attend as they did years ago. Or the, or the music has changed. Or the people are dressing differently. While the religious leaders, the keepers of the law, grumbled about how Jesus was ignoring the rules and the way things are and the way things have always been and the way things always will be. Because he's sharing table fellowship with people not in the family. People who do not measure up, who don't even know the rules. In response to all of this, Jesus gave the world a story about home. It's a story about inclusion, about redemption, about forgiveness, about reconciliation. The older brother became so angry at his father's willingness to forgive that he refused to consider his younger brother part of the family any longer. You never have given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, which he extrapolated from the dissolute living, he seems to think he can put a finer point on his brother's faults. You killed the fatted calf for him, this son of yours. But the father in this story that Jesus told in response to complaints that he was letting the wrong kind of people into the family, breaking bread with them, the father in this story says, you are already home. Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. And look what the Father does. Because this brother of yours was dead and has come home. He's come to life. He was lost and has been found. This brother of yours. So, with the neighbors watching from a distance to enjoy 
seeing this good-for-nothing kid who's come crawling home get what he has coming, with the father running toward his approaching lost boy, the older brother standing in the background with his arms folded, shaking his head. And the younger son practicing his desperate plea as his father closes the distance. We get our answer. We get this story. You can come home. In Christ, you are always home. St. Paul, who knew this truth in the most personal way possible, after having persecuted those who followed Jesus and standing by nodding his approval while they put young Stephen to death, St. Paul would write in the fifth chapter of Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, huh? While we were crawling back home, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in the same chapter, Paul will say, even when we were God's enemies, he made peace with us because his son died for us. Yet something even greater than friendship is ours. Now we are at peace with God. We will be saved by his son's life. You can't go home, they say. But God says something different. And in a moment in these waters of holy baptism, God will say to young Bergen, you're home, you're my child, you're my son. And if Bergen grows up to be anything like me, there are going to be stretches of his life where he is less concerned about his connection to God and his faith and his church. He'll be busy with college and girlfriends and whatever comes out there. But there will never come a time where God the Father forgets this promise. You have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are a child of God. You are home. Always home.